John chapter 13, verse 1. This is the word of God. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I've been thinking a lot about legacy lately. That can sound selfish as though you do the things you do because you want to be remembered. But at its best, legacy is about the mark you leave on people because of the way you treated them. Legacy is the result of how you live, not the goal. In the last few months, I read eulogies for Thomas McKenzie, an Anglican pastor in Nashville who died in a car accident. I was in the front row for the eulogy given by Ronnie's best friend, and by Tip Dierenforth's son-in-law. And in each case, I heard beautiful things about the impact 
they had on others. And it made me wonder what impact I would have. What legacy will you leave behind? It sounds almost silly to talk about with regards to Jesus. The world's only true religion bears his name. Believe in him or not, the whole world knows who he is. The most celebrated holiday bears his name, no matter what purpose others give it. For we who do believe, his impact is even greater, unmatched. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He sent us his spirit, which gives us comfort when all other sources fail. His spirit, which enables us to pursue Christ-likeness, to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Christ's impact on his people, on us at large, is life-altering. It's eternity-altering. But Christ's legacy for some is also deeply personal. John tells this story as one who was there and will never forget what Jesus did for him. The extraordinary level of detail suggests that this scene lives vividly in John's memory. Among the gospel writers, John is usually the one least interested in chronological time and small details, but for these events, his account is the most detailed. Even in the title that John uses to describe himself here, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, Jesus loved all his disciples. John is not boasting here, but isn't it interesting that the recollection of these particular moments in Jesus' ministry remind John of the depth of Jesus' love for him? This title was probably given to John by others, others who saw Jesus' love. This title honors that love. One pastor says it doesn't imply arrogance. It implies a profound sense of indebtedness to grace. Jesus was first and foremost the God-man. Emmanuel came to save his people from their sins. And he was also a man, a rabbi, a master, a teacher, a friend. And among those who knew him, he left behind a legacy of deeply personal love. Not because that legacy was his goal, but because that legacy is what happens when you live a life that actually loves. With final appeals for repentance and warnings against unbelief, Jesus removes himself from the crowds. And now as the cross draws near, the time is right to focus his attention and his love intensely on his disciples. And in each scene that follows, the foot washing, the farewell address, the high priestly prayer, and the cross, in each scene, the motive of love for his people is preeminent. And this chapter begins with an extraordinary example of that love. Many scholars believe that only the cross itself surpasses what happens here. And for that to register, you've really got to understand how despised the act of foot washing was in the ancient world. For some of you grossed out by all feet, it's not too difficult to imagine. Back in chapter 1, when John the Baptist was looking for a way to contrast Christ's worthiness and glory with his own unworthiness, he said, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He was talking about the first step of foot washing. 
And he used that illustration because he couldn't think of any better way to make it clear how glorious Christ was and how not glorious John himself was. Feet in the ancient Near East were gross. The roads were dusty and dirty all the time. And people wore sandals rather than closed-toed shoes. And they walked everywhere for transportation, so their feet were constantly gunked up. And when you entered a house, especially for a meal, your feet needed to be washed before you came to the table to eat. That was especially true for a meal like this one, where you were going to recline with your feet out in front of everyone. And the job of foot washing fell to whomever was lowest in the household's social hierarchy, usually a servant. It wasn't just gross. It was socially demeaning. It showed how low you were on the totem pole. And that's why in the upper room, where the disciples gathered for supper, no one wanted to do it. John remembers it as if it were yesterday. I bet you have some memories like this too, seared in your mind. Times when someone served or loved you in a profound and unexpected way. Acts of service, not done selfishly for praise or recognition. Acts of service done out of genuine love. These are what get remembered in life. The first scene in the upper room, however, isn't one of love, but of pride And prejudice, prejudice against feet. There's no servant in the upper room. The time for the meal has arrived. The disciples are lounging around pretending to be oblivious, all the while waiting to see who else is going to do this. Who's going to humiliate themselves by offering to wash the feet? In Luke's gospel, we get the added context of their conversation. You remember what they were talking about? Which among us is the greatest? (laughs) Clearly, they're not thinking that greatness is measured in units of love for others. Another writer does a great job of painting the picture. He says, in the upper room, everything was ready. Here stood the pitcher and the wash basin, and there lay the long linen cloth. Yet no one moved. The food was on the table, and the meal was about to begin. And still no one offered to perform the duty. The waiting ends because Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. John makes sure to tell us that Jesus laid aside his outer garments, plural, Instead of removing only his outermost robe, Jesus takes the form of a slave dressed now in nothing but a loincloth. And don't miss verse 3 either. John says that Jesus does this knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Jesus hasn't forgotten who he is. He does this because he knows exactly who he is. The Messiah. The one who was in the beginning with God and was God having taken on human flesh, now puts on the clothing and takes on the role of a servant. What wondrous love is this? The disciples ought to be ashamed. They're playing a game of chicken with one another to see who would finally break. 
And they were shocked to find that Jesus, their master, their Lord and God, he lowered himself first and most. Shamed, shocked, and speechless. That would have been a good sermon title. Speechless, except, of course, for Peter. Speechless really isn't his thing. He's more of a misunderstanding kind of guy. Peter liked to think out loud. And so as Jesus approaches him, he says, no chance. He sees the situation not through the lens of love, but one of social injustice. In Greek, the words you and my are placed right next to each other in the sentence. It's awkward word order, but it's there to highlight the stark contrast between who Jesus is and who Peter is. And Peter's right about the comparative glory between he and Jesus. But he's wrong about what love looks like. The connection between service and glory, between greatness and love, is exactly what Jesus intends to show. And we see in his response to Peter that there's a lot more going on here than just foot washing. In verses 7 and 8, he makes clear that this is an essential act in his ministry to his people. This foot washing matters. It's an act of humiliation. It's an act of obedience that is of a kind with what he will do on the cross. And in that way, it also symbolizes the cross, the lowly position of a sinner that Jesus will assume on his people's behalf. And if Peter cannot accept Christ's lowering of himself to wash his feet, how will he ever accept Christ's offer of soul cleansing through substitutionary death? This challenges many even today. A list of ten things they have to do to please God, they might accept. An offer to go in 50-50 with God on their salvation, that has some appeal. But when God says, I must do it all, I must give myself for you, there is nothing you can bring, nothing you have to offer, you must only receive the one I send in my name, that's an offense. I don't take handouts. I'm not helpless. Now, Peter swings his emotional pendulum in the other direction. Not just my feet then, all of me, my hands and my head. And so Jesus pivots the symbolism here to make another point about the cleansing that he'll offer on the cross, that it's once and for all. Yes, we will need to continue to confess our sins and to pursue new life in obedience, but Christ's death is sufficient for all our sin, and we are forever clean by faith. Kids, Peter is a wonderful example of how God can change us by the power of his spirit. There might be many ways that we think and speak and act today that we wish were different, ways that aren't pleasing to God and that cause trouble or conflict with others, and we think this could never change. We should look at Peter and be encouraged. God's spirit brings change. Think about the gospel accounts of Peter. He was an impulsive guy. He was driven by his emotions. One second, he's walking on water in faith. The next moment, he's sinking in fear. One minute, he boldly confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And the next minute, he's lecturing the Christ on Peter's plans for his life. He'll promise to lay down his life for Christ right before he denies that he knows him to a little child. But then we have Peter's New Testament letters. And we can tell, as another pastor put it, that grace gradually won the victory. I think I decided this week that that's what I want printed on my tombstone. Grace gradually won the victory. 
be encouraged, kids and adults. The power of God can and will change us to make us more like Christ. The other thing that Jesus is doing with the foot washing is setting an example for his people to follow. Not likely with foot washing itself, thankfully. Those days seem to be past. But certainly with the humility and the willingness to serve others. That's what Jesus is demonstrating. By this kind of service, Jesus says, this kind of willingness to humble ourselves and give to others, we are blessed. And when Jesus says something is blessed, those are not idle words. Other people may not think there's blessing there. The disciples surely didn't at first. Even the person doing the act may not feel blessed as you're doing that hard work of serving others. But Jesus declares the blessing to be. When we serve others in love, we are objects of his favor. We are blessed. And there's no place we should rather be. Also, as an aside, parents, you may want to take notice of the method Jesus uses here for correcting the bad behavior of his disciples. Because the rebuke is buried within the positive instruction. Calling them to the blessing of doing what's right seems to carry more weight than lingering attention on the wrong that they had done instead. There's a lot happening in this passage. And from the end, we can see there's even one more thing than the disciples first understood, and that's because of Judas. But Jesus knows, and it troubles him. John mentions Judas in verse 2 at the very beginning of the narrative. And that reminder really shows how far Jesus' love goes beyond what anyone could expect. Knowing that Judas is here, knowing that the devil is at work in him, we'd expect Jesus to use his divine power to just deal with the situation. Instead, he uses divine love. He washes even Judas' feet. In verse 10, he makes clear that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, even if the disciples do not. Talk about loving your enemies. The disciples are oblivious that there even could be an enemy in the upper room. Jesus knows exactly who he is, and he washes his feet. The disciples ignore his comments the first few times until finally in verse 21, Jesus states it so plainly that they have to acknowledge the issue, and they're astonished. Surely not I, Lord. All except Judas. Though he says the same words, He's the one who knows that Jesus is right. And yet with the foot washing and with the offer that follows, Jesus is offering Judas a viable alternative. Jesus is offering Judas his love. But Judas had made up his mind. He's convinced that it's inevitable. Jesus will be put to death. The disciples will be put out of the synagogue. He was so convinced of this that Satan brought him an idea. If it's going to happen anyway, why go down with the ship? Why not instead ingratiate yourself with the Jewish authorities so that when all of this happens and goes bad, you're at least on the winning side? That idea is tempting. It's planted by that unholy tempter. But Judas has a choice. It's clear that his plan is no longer secret. Jesus has brought it out into the open. Yet, even so, Jesus just washed his feet. And now Jesus offers him a a sop, a, a piece of bread that's been dipped in wine. He offers him a sop from his own hand. 
This is quite significant in ancient cultures. We have some sense of it today. Jesus references Psalm 41 in verse 18, that this moment is its fulfillment. And there David is lamenting the betrayal of a close friend. And the way he says that he's close is that he's eaten at my own table. He's eaten bread from my very hand. This was unconscionable in the ancient world. The giving of a meal is such an act of friendship and generosity and love that to betray one who would do this for you is the lowest of the low. And that's why when Peter nudges John to quietly ask Jesus who the betrayer is, Jesus answers through this symbolism rather than directly by just saying, it's that guy. He dips a piece of bread in his wine and he holds it out to Judas. What will Judas do? He could immediately repent of his treachery. He could receive the love of Christ that is being offered to him in the foot washing, in this bread, and soon on the cross. Jesus warned the unbelieving crowds of the dangers of unbelief. He pleaded with them to believe. And now he makes the same offer to Judas. Here is my love. Won't you receive it? Judas takes the morsel, but he makes a different choice. So Jesus, knowing all men's hearts, says what you are going to do, do quickly. One pastor says, think of the sop as a final gesture of supreme love. Judas received the sop, but not the love. And instead of breaking him and urging him to repentance, it only hardened his resolve. You ever think about the legacy that Judas left behind? Another pastor calls him the great pretender. In chapter 6, many disciples left Jesus because the teaching was too hard, but Judas stayed pretending to believe. When Mary used the expensive ointment on Jesus, he pretended to be concerned with the poor, all the while stealing from the money bag for himself. And even now, when Jesus says he will be betrayed, And the disciples call out one by one, surely not I, Lord. Judas joins his voices with theirs, pretending to be as surprised as they are that the accusation could even be made. And Jesus offers him a sop, a morsel of bread and wine from his own hand. And Judas takes it and pretends to receive it by faith. How does someone get this way? so set against God? The answer, sadly, is one sin at a time. It's not a dramatic choice to renounce Christ and to link arms with the evil one. It's the slow searing of a conscience, justifying this act and then another one, making excuses and rationale for selfishness until you get to a point where you can only look upon true service, true generosity, and true love with disdain. What's Judas' legacy? John remembers it. Darkness. He went out, and it was night. Now, only Jesus, Judas, John, maybe Peter at this point, know that Judas is the betrayer. The others can make very little sense of what Jesus said. 
John finds out from them later that they assume Jesus was talking about buying supplies for the next meal or giving to the poor, as was customary at Passover. And when the truth comes out, they're going to be stunned. And their faith could have really been shaken. Except that all throughout, Jesus had been loving them by preparing them. Judas' shocking betrayal is anything but to God. Jesus always knew it was coming. He knew it when he chose Judas to be among the twelve. All of this, all of this wretched, heartbreaking business, all of it is known to God and is in fulfillment of his plan. And one of the ways he loves his disciples is to warn them that the trials are coming. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. The work Christ begins with the washing of feet ends with the cry of Calvary. It is finished. Christ's love for us means that we never need to doubt if we are loved. We should receive the cleansing of Christ, not in the abstract, but as John did, in a deeply personal way. And then, having taken up the cleansing power of Christ, we lay down our pride And we invest in a legacy of love for others. We, by the spirit of Christ, walk as those who have been made clean. That's all it takes to leave a Christ-like legacy. A life of walking with Christ. The servant isn't better than her master, and so she can joyfully serve as he served. The follower of Christ can freely give himself to others as Christ freely gave himself to us. Pride. Prejudice against lowering yourself to serve. Or love. 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 What will your legacy be?